Hello and welcome to the Rust Workshop podcast, brought to you by the Rust Workshop, a Rust programming consultancy in Leafy, Hampshire, UK. So, <clears throat> today on the show I have uh, my good friend and fellow programmer, Jim, um, and the subject of today is what even is this Rust thing? And to share our naive excitement, because this is all new, this is, as you can see, a super early episode um, we'll get more expert as we go on. So, hello, Jim. Do you want to introduce yourself, and then I'll talk a bit about me. Hey there, Tim. Um, yes, I am a C plus plus developer, among a few other things. Of um, oh, I don't know, more than twenty years now, at any rate. And um, I've I've paid some attention to trying to steal the best ideas in terms of idioms and um, paradigms uh, from other languages and track some of the best ideas as they come into C++ over the recent spurt of um, standardization efforts to improve it. And uh, I, I guess I'm generally a systems guy, at least in my core interests. Um, and yes, so Basically, I've got a kind of systems level first view of things in general, a uh, strong eye towards eliminating unnecessary inefficiency, but also mm -hmm. compromising it where it's better for other considerations, uh, like readability or maintainability, hopefully. And uh, yes, so it sh I cool. hope it should be obvious to everyone listening why I might be excited about Rust. <laughs> Yeah, I'd say I, I was a little surprised that it caught your interest. Um, but before we get into that, uh, let me just give people an intro into me and why on earth this is even a thing right now for for me. Um, so I've been more of an applications programmer in the web sphere also for 20 odd years um, through Permi jobs and contracting. Um, now recently taking a serious jump into team lead kind of things. Uh, with existing clients um, and <clears throat> I, I've been poking around the entrepreneur landscape for quite some time now uh, my latest concept is a secondhand buying and selling thing to sort of push on the eco-friendly side to do something potentially uh, um, that I would prefer to use than uh, eBay or Facebook marketplace and that kind of thing um, so I have this idea that I would like to bootstrap this um, and the challenge with that is largely hosting costs. I, I'm aware that there are other, other challenges. So it, it caught my eye that <clears throat> maybe C Sharp and Ruby on Rails would limit my ability to support lots of users, um, which could limit my ability to get to enough users for a good network to get income to support the thing on its own legs. Uh, I have written a thing in Golang um, called Schema Explorer um, and very much enjoyed that, but was not super enamored with the idea of writing the next thing in that, having having spent a few years hacking away on that on the side, uh, although it would um, meet the requirements. Um, as a C-sharp programmer, primarily um, I felt like I was kind of losing 
uh, a lot of the things that make programming nice and less repetitive. So I, I totally appreciate that Golang is an excellent choice for a large engineering organization like Google that has to have thousands and thousands of pairs of hands pass over um, pieces of code over its life. Um, compile times are obviously a big thing for them. <clears throat> um, so I had become aware of Rust. Uh, it got mentioned in the Stack Overflow developer survey as a most loved language uh, repeatedly, year on year. Um, I'd heard enough about it on uh, presumably podcasts and, and the occasional web article, but I'd not really looked at it that much, but I knew it was a kind of low-level thing. So I I went to the Stack Overflow thing, uh, and they had a blog article on... Uh, like what I forget what they called it, but especially why is Rust so interesting? <laughs> What's all this fuss about Rust? Um, and read that, and that enlightened me a bit to how it had come out of Mozilla, um, that it was this really low-level thing that had been built up to become kind of the language that people would like in terms of uh, zero-cost abstractions, but still having lots of modern programmer affordances and like looking at the syntax um, and the way, the way you write things like list comprehension and um, pattern matching. Uh, it certainly seemed to be <clears throat> something that might feel a little less constraining than Golang. So uh, that was a little while ago. Um, so I thought, well, obviously I have to learn this thing in order to really truly evaluate whether this is something that I would like a long-term project in. So sat down and started reading the tutorials and the docs and uh, the Rust docs are superb <clears throat> um, very approachable multiple different ways of learning it they've got uh, the Rust book they've got Rust by example and then they've got the reference uh, and they all complement each other um, <clears throat> and having kind of worked through a bunch of that and done a couple of their little tutorial projects um, uh, then kind of needed some kind of direction to go from there, but didn't certainly didn't feel like I knew everything and was good to go. Whereas with Golang, because it's a very small language, I didn't need to read that much before I was like, okay, yeah, I kind of get this. I can head off and build the real thing. Can uh, I ask a so, question? Yeah, of course. Um, what was thinking about Go and Rust? Can you remember what? shortcomings in your view of go made rust seem attractive to you what caught your attention about rust and why given your experience of go up to that point well this is where everyone in the comments is going to tell me i'm wrong <laughs> um what did i it, it, to an extent it was a feel um so one of the things I mean, they have now introduced generics, but that was an absence that I was aware of, and I remember generics being introduced into C-sharp, so that had made me a bit uneasy because I remember how valuable that was. Um, mm. They have now added it, but the syntax is a bit kooky, if you ask me. Um, the error handling, they do by multiple return, um, so your code is littered with if... Uh, what was it? I forget how exactly it looks. But basically, when you call a function that you've written that returns a value and possibly an error as like a tuple, um, then you kind of, every single time you have to go if error, or then, 
do something, which might be then return the error further up the stack. Um, and it's it just feels really boilerplate and it's it's possible that there's like, I don't know libraries that make this better or what have you and they do they do have panic so there is some kind of form of exception system in there but that's more more intended for um you know you're writing a web server if something has gone wrong like you know your io didn't work when you expect to be able to re- rely on it like you know you're trying to load a file off disk that really should be there and you panic and then your web server can catch that um, and behave gracefully without tearing the whole thing down. But it's it's not for the kind of more granular error handling. So whereas in C sharp you might use a lot more exceptions. <clears throat> to, you know you might have an exception that's like a um, blah not found. So you know when a user clicks the wrong link and it's a dead link, then you might have a throw in there that you can catch an appropriate place in your business logic. Um, so that kind of felt kind of boilerplatey. Um, they are lacking um, a, a lot of in C sharp. We have link um, to like take lists and you know do map reduce kind of stuff and basically very effectively faff around with lists. Like particularly, I believe Python's particularly good at this kind of stuff. So it felt like we're going backwards a bit with GoLang um, mm. and certainly looking at Rust like all of that stuff is is there and is is good um it, it sounds to me like with your years of experience dealing with real world problems especially business problems you could already see a couple of things in go that struck you as perhaps more naive than wise or that that, that would cause problems in large complex systems that you could foresee um <clears throat> so i don't i don't think they'd cause problems in terms of being able to do a really good job and great engineering. I think with my context, there are two reasons why I was a bit wary of it. One is because this is a side project, I want to want to pull out the laptop at 10 o'clock in the evening and do a couple of hours. Um, And if I'm really not loving the language that I built the thing in, I'm just going to be like, ah, this is this is not bringing me joy. And that's, I've realized that that's important. If you're going to have, you know, an extra project that you're not, isn't your day job and it's something that you know you're trying to push yourself Um, and the other consideration is um, I do have an ambition to have things that it's just not it's not just me that works on like I'll I'll create the seed and prove the business side of it that there is enough traction to make this thing worth investing in and then as that flywheel starts then I can bring people on and I can start paying people to work on a code base with uh, the confidence that that this is worth doing and I'm not just throwing my contracting money down the drain. Um, And from that point of view, it does matter like whether it's pleasing to work on. And I, I, I do wonder whether Golang is, you know, people people get interested in something for its novelty, but then once they've had a play with it, if it's really not that fun to work with, like, you know, they might go and get a job in it, and that's cool. <clears throat> um, but when the shine goes, if I'm trying to find great people who've got lots of options, I might struggle to find people who are, like, enthusiastic to come and work on something little in Golang. You know, it, it's there's a big difference between, you know, a little side project bootstrap thing that hasn't necessarily got a huge amount of money to throw at people saying, hey, come and work on this fairly boring language compared to Google saying, 
hey, come and work on this fairly boring language at this gigantic reputable company. And by the way, we can pay you double market rates. Um, if you know what I mean. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's fair to say that Go was what one of Go's design goals was not necessarily to be fun. Um, it was. Yeah. It seems to me, from what I've heard, that it was designed to to optimize development workflows and deployment workflows mm-hmm. above yep. all else, right? Yeah, compile times was a really big thing from them for them in their design. They, my understanding is they got a gigantic C plus plus code base, and because of this like cascade of headers, the amount of I/O means that it literally takes twenty four hours plus to build the thing. Um, Careful, you're in serious danger of starting me on a rant. Compile times are the one thing I hate most about C++, much as I love the language. And mm. the worst part is I understand the reasons why it's not easy to fix. Yep. Yeah, so that's definitely one of the things that's cool about Golang, is that the compiles are fast, um, from what I understand. It's probably the fastest one around. And that is super, super important, lest that escape anybody. It really matters. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I like the movement. This kind of um, your cycle time as a developer is important. And I, I'm t- totally familiar with this idea that, um, like, viscerally familiar <laughs> with this thing where you have all of this context in your head, and then you hit build and run the tests, and then quarter of an hour, an hour later, they finish, and you've completely forgotten what you were doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, in, in a way, in goes defense. Perhaps, although it's not explicitly designed to be fun, the fact that it optimizes the iterative workflow of the programmer actually does make it a bit more fun, even by accident, because you're not constantly dropping context on the floor, uh, twiddling your thumbs while it compiles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great engineering is definitely a pleasing thing. I mean, it's one of the things that keeps me interested in in contracting. Cool. Mm. So, where were we? The... So yeah, at this point we're. I tried Golang. It didn't seem that exciting. I'd heard about this Rust thing. It's pretty speedy and low level. I'm now trying to kind of learn this thing to get a better handle on it. Um, the a client that I've got has got microservices, which means like twenty, thirty Git repository, which is a bit of a hassle. Um, I hunted around to find out what what was out there to make it a bit easier to manage all of these repositories on your local machine. Um, and I found I found a couple. There's one called Git A, which seemed to be about the best one around. It's written in Python, which means that in order to install it, you have to install Python, which is a minor faff. Um, <clears throat> uh, the thing that really put me off with it is the command line syntax. It doesn't make any sense to me, and I can never remember how to use it. Um, hmm. So it just occurred to me, ah, oh, maybe this is a good hobby project to, like, have a real problem to solve to push me to learn Rust. And this was also quite a while ago now. <clears throat> um, I, I know I don't have a huge amount of time, but this has been a, an excellent exercise um, because I, I made a reasonably speedy start hashing something out. I then, um, and this is where I think we get into the the actual experience of Rust. <clears throat> um, I The first thing I ran into was... I sketched out the configuration for this thing um, that it would save for its local state, kind of listing what repositories it knew about in what folders. Um, And there are a couple of uh, libraries in Rust that can parse this format called TOML, um, which is actually a really nice format for this kind of thing. 
It's really simple. Uh, I, uh, if you've ever looked at a Git config, that's I don't know if it's actually the same format, but that's basically what it looks like. Um, <clears throat> and I then lost ages because um, because I designed the format that I wanted, which is valid Toml. I was then like, okay, how do I get this library to produce that based on the Rust I'm writing? So, you know, some in-memory Rust structure. And then, hey, library, make me a string that looks like that. Um, and what I eventually discovered is that uh, the Toml format has uh, a test suite um, which has a whole bunch of examples, a lot of examples in both Toml and JSON, and you should be able to to and fro between them, like round trip between them. And the way this particular library had written the tests was they would <coughs> um, read one, parse it into its internal structure, write out the other one, and then assert that the strings were basically as expected, and it would do this in both directions. Um, and I spent ages reading the code and scratching my head and complete, there was a particular structure that I wanted. So most of it worked, but there was a particular structure I wanted that I couldn't work out how to make it produce that thing, even having read the code. And what I eventually established is that they had an entire, so you could use uh, normal Rust structs for your own thing. And you could, you could a vector of these and <clears throat> even B trees of these um, which are like a dictionary in C-sharp terms. Um, and you could give this structure of things into this library and it would produce a TOML file. But it actually has its own internal structures that it uses. Um, <clears throat> and when it's doing these round-trip tests, it only uses these internal structures. And it turns out there was no way that you could build a Rust structure that would actually serialize <laughs> into a, this particular TOML that I'd had. Un very unfortunately decided was going to be part of my format. Uh, so that, that cost me loads of time. Um, kind of what I learned in that journey is that there's, from my limited experience, there's quite good coverage in what they call crates, which is basically their libraries. Um, but like a lot of younger ecosystems, it's going to be a little bit potluck. And you could be working on a project. You could pick a, a Rust crate and discover that it's broken or it doesn't fit your needs or whatever. So this is definitely something to be aware of um, as moving into the ecosystem that perhaps, unlike, well, maybe more like Node than we would like to say, like Node.js and NPM or um, NuGet generally pretty solid. It's been around for a very long time for the C-sharp ecosystem. So yeah, it's definitely something to be aware of. So that was a learning. Um, yeah, any thoughts? You see in C++, we just hand-code link lists from scratch when we run up against that kind of thing. It solves all problems. Yeah, not invented here and all that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, link lists actually come up as it happens. Um, but I shall carry on. <clears throat> so uh, I have battled away. I, I, where I ended up with that was discovering that there was already a GitHub issue that explained why you couldn't do it, <laughs> which is always the way. Um, so I added some more information to that and, you know, maybe put a bounty on it at some point, which would be cool. Um, and then the next challenge was testing. Uh, so I started off with just a bash script that ran up the XE, um, and tried a couple of things. Um, but obviously that's not going to last. And 
wouldn't run in GitHub uh, actions for continuous integration tests. So then I <coughs> wanted to do that, and I wrote a unit test based on the like the docs that are out there. That was nice and straightforward. I like I like the fact that the unit tests are alongside the production code in the file and are just compiled out. That's really cool. Um, in C sharp land, they tend to um, have an entire separate tree called test. And having seen the alternatives, actually, that's not very good. <laughs> Particularly if you yeah. use like. In, I mean, I've got a mixed approach in my own uh, in my C plus plus work, which is to have the tests in their own file, but they live alongside the code they're testing, mm-hmm. which is kind of slight sounds slightly better than the C sharp approach. But I can see the merits of the Rust way of doing it as well. It's quite nice. Yeah, yeah, it is. Golang does that. It, you have like foo dot go and foo underscore test dot go, and it it knows that that's the test file just because of the file name, which is kind of cool. Nice. Um. <clears throat> So I did that. Uh, then integration testing has a specific meaning in Rust. Um, so that's where you... I think that's where you create a tests folder um, side by side. And then that only has access to the public interface of your crate. Um, and I spent a, quite a while scratching my head because in c land, if... There's not actually a huge difference between an XE and a DLL uh, or an executable and a library in other terms. Um, so you can actually you know, load a, an XE as if it was a library and poke it with a stick. Um, but it turns out, <clears throat> and it's not super obvious from the docs, that in Rust, um, I, I couldn't access the public modules uh, from the tests in the um, application binary. And I had to split it into a lib uh, uh, crate thing um, before I could test it, and that, that had me scratching my head for quite a while. But that's now that's now working. Um, the next challenge was um, I'd written the code just hard coded with real file storage and a real shell out to call to talk to Git um, and to run commands. Um, so I wanted to not run that in my tests because otherwise I'd have to have some kind of real environment in GitHub, which I wasn't quite ready to do. Um, although I think that's possible because you can pretty much run Docker in GitHub CI. So then I had to figure out what dependency injection looks like, which is kind of my next thing. Um, and at that point, I realized how much I'm not a Rust programmer or a C++ programmer and how much C Sharp gives me <laughs> for free. Because um, the first thing I tried to do was assign two different types of things to a trait. So I had a trait which was like um, file storage for the configuration and I had a trait which was talk to git. Uh, And then in the production code I gave, when I fired it up, I gave it an instance of um, the real code and then as soon as I tried to give it uh, a fake thing in the test, it said you can't do that because I don't know what size they are. (laughs) <laughs> at which point my brain melted because in C-sharp this isn't even a question you just like, hey I assigned this thing fine, right um, so can I, a bunch of can, learning if ensued I can inter- if yeah, I can interject for here for anytime. a moment this is a, this is a long <clears throat> running issue I remember at university all the uh, all the uh, shall we for maximum kindness refer to them as Java newbies 
uh, who'd never really done programming before and who felt qualified to to sit around carping about C++. Um, had a certain smugness about them, but one of the things I realized pretty early on was that things like C++ actually have a kind of consistency that things like Java don't. And C-sharp certainly historically has the same problem, and I think it persists to this day because it's baked into the design of the uh, of the garbage collection system, which is that this there's no real... Although you have both value types and reference types, the people who talk about, certainly about uh, Java and probably to some extent with C-sharp, try to kind of pretend that that distinction doesn't exist. And when you're writing C++, you have to have this distinction very clear in your mind. And, and what you're talking about when the compiler doesn't know the size of a type, that is specifically something that tends to happen with reference types, because under the hood, uh, the, the, the references are, are pointers, uh, but with value types, they can go on the stack, and generally you're instantiating concrete types and using them as concrete types. So it's something I've been aware of, that somebody who's used to languages like Java and C-sharp, which I think originally made, they made this decision to make the intrinsic types value types in the in the way you would understand in something like C++, but everything mm-hmm. else is a reference type. And this distinction is just kind of not talked about. It's just you're expected to understand that when you're using an intrinsic type, there are there are ways you use it that are different to the way you use everything else, but it's never conceptually clarified. And I might suspect that one of the reasons you tripped over that and had such a hard time with it is that many years of C-sharp had failed to make you think about that distinction enough to see why the compiler might not know the size or why that would be relevant or something like Mm -hmm. that. Do you think there's anything there? Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, it's like... It, like the concept didn't make any sense to me whatsoever um and i remember like in my early days of c sharp kind of oh reference thing value thing eh, and some kind of heap and stack thing and you know i've I've done enough computer science consultancy things <clears throat> to understand like how a computer hangs together and you know the fact that there is this stack that is you know the actual bits of execution you know yeah you, you hit a breakpoint in C sharp and you can see a call stack and there's this idea that like it's captured everything that's going on including you know a high level what variables are around and what values they have um but yeah you can't from that kind of tell oh well that one is actually off on the heap because that's a a reference to more data um so yeah that definitely made it harder and i have to say i think probably practically that has given C sharp quite an advantage and Java uh, over the years because it is easier. Like you can just ignore all of their stuff, and if you don't need the performance, if you're just doing what I usually do, which is random line of business apps, then who cares? Mostly, um, so yeah. Right. No, you're definitely right there. I I think that the crux of the thing might be that because of the way they they design this this distinction away, um, or, or kind of have, have a two tier object system. C-sharp and Java don't allow you to construct anything non-trivial as a value type. Obviously, that's kind of the point. Yeah. And unless 
you try and do that, you're not really going to think this whole thing through properly. It's every everything non-trivial you do ends up as a reference type, and you know how to deal with those. And the kinds of things, because the only value types are intrinsic types, the kinds of things you do with them are so simple that your brain effectively develops two different modes for dealing with mm. those situations. And there's no overview that takes both of them in, maybe. Mm. Yeah, uh, I'd say like one of the things that's attracted me to Rust is. Um, over the years, I've always felt like, as a programmer, I should be able to be closer to the machine and to the metal. Um, like I've always been aware that C Sharp has got these kind of fuzzy abstractions and that there is this runtime and bytecode and um, all sorts of clever optimizations between me and the machine. You know, but I'm never going to get all the way down. I'm not going to start writing assembler or um, processor microcode or anything crazy like that. Um, but it always felt like, do we, do we actually need all of these abstractions? Because they all have a real cost in terms of performance and understanding, and maybe just a little bit of extra time learning, and then running closer to the closer to the machine. You know, maybe you can be just as productive and <clears throat> um, get a whole bunch of advantages in understanding and efficiency and speed. Um, but before Rust showed up. Um, I was not about to start learning C++, <laughs> basically. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I can just talk briefly historically about the bytecode thing. I think what happened there mm. was that Java certainly had aspirations, and I, I think to a large extent it's delivered on these aspirations to be a multi-platform language. That was the justification for having a bytecode mm -hmm. system. Um, yeah, it was right once, run anywhere. And, and that, yeah, right. I, I think, run anyway. I think times have changed and kind of left Java behind because when they created this, um, it maybe was a bit more prohibitive to compile a version for every platform out there. Um, and it made sense to have this bytecode and then they could work carefully on their bytecode interpreter and make sure that that was deployed out to all of the various platforms. And also it helped them to own... Um, that piece of the puzzle in the platform wars that were going on at the time, way back. Um, but now, you know, it's really not any great shakes to just, you know, have GitHub actions compile for every platform. I, like, even my little Git GitOpolis thing, you know, with a bit of Googling and grabbing recipes that are out there, I've managed to make it automate building Windows and Linux binaries and publishing them. Um, so all I have to do is push and tag and that's that done. So I, I think times have changed and that's maybe less important now. I, I think, to be to be fair, there's also a psychological aspect here, which is that the psychology at the time in the 90s was very much uh, a, a, around distributing software, was very much that the source code was a trade secret, never to be seen by anyone except the developers. Mm. And therefore, having a binary format that would run identically anywhere with different virtual machines was a natural way to to deal with the problem of multiple platforms in that context. And I think that's probably the reason why C Sharp, which was didn't start that much later than Java, certainly within 10 years and probably much less than that, I think, forget the chronology, they they went for this same approach and they also had aspirations to be multi-platform and what's fallen mm -hmm. away now what what's changed 
is that in a lot of ways that are hard for people like you and I to notice, the world of IT has become a lot more Unixy in its philosophy. Source code is much more now something that is shared, not always, but very often. And mm -hmm. it's often seen as the single source of truth in a way for, for making real software um, pop into existence by compiling it. Um, mm. So there's just more of a culture of, of sharing source code. And so the ability to have that intermediate format that is in some way a single source of truth regarding the behavior of the program, but is still sufficiently obfuscated that you can't steal people's source code. That whole issue has just become less important and it's become more recognized that stealing someone's source code is not that big a leg up on them. We've <laughs> talked about this before, haven't we? That, that yeah. you can steal the source code of an, of an entire company mm -hmm. and without all of the customer relationships and the various other data and mm. logistical aspects that go with that, you haven't really stolen anything of much value. No, not really. Not if you don't know how to do marketing and legal and yada, 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 yada. Yeah, right. The recognition, it's been recognized that code is less of a problem than we thought. Less of yeah. the problem of business, shall we say, in IT. Yeah. Yeah, if you know how to do all of the things as well as the code, then you're not going to be faffing around stealing other people's code. You're going to be building a better business and putting them out of business. And building better code while you're at it. Yeah. Yeah, potentially. So... We're nearly up to date with the journey. <laughs> um, so I, I got the Gitopolis, uh dependency injection working, and the magic thing was box, which is basically pointer to thing. It's a it's a clever pointer. Um, it fits in with their whole borrowing system. It manages ownership and all of this clever stuff that I, I don't... You, yeah, you I might don't even call it a smart pointer. Uh, if you knew C++, you might. <laughs> um so from my point of view as a C-sharp programmer, it was like, oh, okay. Like, all of the things that looked really, really hard, actually, if I just box it. Um, and I don't think it's quite the same concept as C-sharp's box. Um, then I can now happily swap in and out my various implementations, and I don't think this is a particular performance issue, frankly, uh, especially for a little command line tool. Um and it sounds like it's idiomatic enough. Like, you know, learning a new language, you're kind of a bit paranoid about, like, am I writing something that all of the experienced programmers are just going to laugh at and tell me I did it wrong? Um, but there's also, you know, can you get a job done? Uh, Your great yeah. advantage with Rust is that there are no experienced programmers yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, there's definitely there's definitely some <laughs> floating around. They're, they're probably very busy and hard to, hard to get hold of now. Um, yeah. Uh, so... The next thing I tried to do was uh, where did I get to? Oh, I was going to add tags. So I've already I've already got this little Gitopolis tool to the point where you can run it and it give it a bunch of folders that are Git repositories and it will then know about them and you can tell it to run arbitrary commands in all of them, which is cool because that's a main feature and it spits out the output, albeit not streamed at the moment. Um, you can take a config file in an empty folder and tell it to reclone them all and it will run git clone for everything it knows about and that's really cool for new starters and machine rebuilds so please do that um and the next thing i want to do is tagging so that you could 
like define subsets of repos to do things on like things for my team or things in this language or things that this other project is working on so you could just like fetch the 10 repos that's related to what i need to do next and see what state they're in um and i have no idea how i fell down this particular rabbit hole but um i basically decided that i needed to know more rust <laughs> before i could do job a good job of this um and was hunting around for some problem or whatever that i forget what it was and i found this article about implementing linked lists in rust which started off with this wonderful tirade about i don't know why they teach linked lists in university it's this really obscure data structure that's only one of many things um but everyone seems to be obsessed by it but it uses linked lists as a way of like naively showing how to build things layering up until they get something that kind of works um and it's quite an entertaining journey so i've been been digesting that and i've learned lots uh the main thing i've learned is about mem replace um which is if you want to because they are popping things off a linked list um if you want to like remove a pointer or a value or i don't know which is sorry i'm not very good at this yet <laughs> um <laughs> and then put the other one in its place you you can't because it leaves it in a invalid state temporarily and then if everything went wrong like a panic happened or whatever they call it um then it would leave it in the bad state that rust is never going to allow um so they've got this memory place so you can do the do the switch in one go in a way that it's happy with that's one of the things i learned from that and i'm still um skimming the last bits of that but i think i'm going to go back to implementing the tag thing now i think i've probably exhausted that thing um and the i think the most... we, we should probably um go through that uh, uh either go through that article or your adventures in trying to follow it in some detail at some point that's going to be a very fruitful um a way to discuss some of the core differences between rust as it is now and the other languages maybe yeah i definitely couldn't do that now i don't know it well enough <laughs> yeah um voyage of discovery for me um and the very most recent thing that's happened um that's cool is rustconf 2022 has it would seem just happened um so i watched the keynote yesterday uh where are we now we're like early september 2022 today um and that was that was interesting um and i will come back to that uh and there was another uh talk about weird rust which is just a 15 minute very well presented one where they found like a test case library in the compiler which is like all of the completely bananas way that you can write code that the rust compiler has to be able to cope with which has got things like if 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 true <laughs> <laughs> and some more stuff which is highly entertaining it's a, it's a very funny talk um if you're if you're sufficiently jaded as a programmer it's funny uh, for anyone else that they'll just look blankly at it i think um so back to the rustconf thing um the keynote i think the second keynote speaker on that um mentioned something which is relatively unusual in open source land which is they really do want to be supportive of business and enterprise and employment and services like it's okay to need money to be able to work on this stuff um which 
uh, I take as some good encouragement for this venture um, that the community is not going to <laughs> hate us for trying to have a living and you know provide value um, in the, the rob more money kind of mindset of do hard things for money and make the world a better place um, so the before we get on to the like broader what do we think about rust um the reason that this podcast exists is because where that journey has led me is just getting a bit more into the rust ecosystem learning a bit more about it meeting some people and kind of realizing that rust really is on the ascendant at the moment and it seems so far to me to be genuinely a wonderful language with really interesting properties um, that are valuable to not just programmers but also businesses um uh, like I saw a post of one organization that had rewritten their core business logic in Rust and that meant that they could deploy their code, single code base, to Windows, Linux, Mac, Android and iOS and then just write um, platform-specific front ends to give you that nice uh, native feel. Um, and I, I think that's really cool. I think that's huge. And presumably server-side as well, um, if they're doing that kind of thing. Um, so... Uh, the the Rust workshop is a nascent charm consulting idea to build an agency uh, to connect programmers and projects that need doing. Uh, given that I am an aspiring entrepreneur and I've been around the coding world for a long time, I've moved into kind of pieces of hiring and managing developers. So I, I think I'm in a really good place to make a success of this. Um, so yeah, my, my little side project is in danger of turning into this agency. So we'll see where this goes. Um, if if you're a, a programmer who wants to get into Rust or is... Hello, Jim. <laughs> potentially. Uh, or a business that is doing some kind of Rust project, such as a um, rewriting a hot path in a microservices system from, say, C Sharp to Rust to get extra juice and lower hosting costs and maybe lower latency and that kind of thing, then that's the kind of project that we'll be looking to take on. Uh, so get in touch, of course. Um, and I'm hoping to make this, over time, an awesome place for programmers to be and an awesome place for clients to get great programmers to work on their problems. Um, so before we get on to the Rust thing, any, any questions, thoughts on that, Jim, before I move on to the, what is this? I, what do we think I about Rust? Don't uh, nothing specific. I mean, um, cool. I've, I've been, I guess I could say, I've been pleasantly surprised with how Rust seems to have slowly captured your your interest and attention because I know you're going through a fair bit of, for want of a better word, agonizing about um, whether to emphasize Go or Rust going forward. Mm. And... Uh, yeah, we I talked about admit, it at length, didn't we? We did, and and much as I tried not to show it, I think I was quietly rooting for you to go for Rust the whole time. <laughs> 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 so that was kind of nice, um, and yeah, so it's kind of it's nice to uh, to the degree that you might have that part of that might have been you're developing slightly more interest in the the low level concerns of code performance. Um, mm. it's, it's kind of, I'm pleased that that's an area where we have more overlap in our interests now, but, um, mm. well, also, I'm, I'm yeah. 
like mostly terrified of it and like struggling to cope rather than interested but yeah (laughs) (laughs) trying trying to climb the mountain yeah sounds like the starting point for a good interest anyway Um, it does yeah (laughs) but yeah and and so uh, and and talking to you while you've gone through especially the process of of writing Gidopolis but partly the decision process before that of which language to emphasize um it's perhaps drawn my mind, my attention uh, to what Russ has going for it in a way that's made me very interested. Mm. Um, that in all my years of watching the language wars, watching the the ideological attitudes, the ideologically designed languages, um, the naivety that drives all of that about real-world problems and the best ways to solve them. I feel like, in many ways, Rust looks like the first serious-minded attempt by people with appropriate levels of humility to build something that could succeed C++ in the long run. So that's mm. quite exciting for me because the I think we can all agree that you really learn the ins and outs of what's good but also what's bad about tools by using them heavily Mm. and my 20 plus years of c++ is no exception to that it's part of the reason i've made such a point of uh stealing idioms um and and ways of doing things from from other languages and inventing uh, inventing my own where necessary uh, kind of independently reinvented a few things because 20 years ago so you didn't have smart pointers so I realized that the capabilities of the language allowed me to write those so I wrote them um, I think before the standard library ones certainly were well publicized uh, even mm. if they existed by that point um, so so yeah in general um, I, I'm think I'm better placed than uh, as well placed as any long-term C++ developer who's been around since the time I started to know what still bugs me about C++ and apart from compile times there's a list of other things uh, that I won't get into but um, it's not like there isn't room for improvement and much as I would like to wait another 10 years for the standards committee to get round to some of these items um, there are some things that are baked in so deeply that uh, I can't see them being addressed anytime soon. And there are just some purely superficial things like the existence of the self keyword. I have actually written type def name of this class self semicolon many, many times in my C++ code. Um, and Rust just does it automatically. And and that's part of uh, that's that relates to the thing about constructors and destructors. Why would you name them after the class? Come up with a standard name. Just little niggles like that that yeah. mostly center around why are you making me repeat myself? And uh, it seems like uh, Rust has actually had a few. It, it it's not mindlessly aped um, some of those things in the way that it might have in the way that Java mindlessly aped too much syntax from C++ for instance mm-hmm. so yeah I feel like it's it's the first thing I've seen that gives me the vibe of being a serious relatively ideology free attempt to do better 
than the state of the art in C++. Um, so that's, yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, that that's huge. To, like, I was not expecting that whatsoever. Like, f- for me as a C-sharp programmer, it's like, hey, this is lower level and seems cool. Um, I was not expecting someone who knows every last corner of C++ to be like, oh, yeah, I might consider replacing my language with this. That's surprising and very encouraging. Well, yeah, um, I should add that uh, um, only someone who isn't a C++ programmer could think that I know every last corner of it because I don't think there's a person alive who actually does. Well, maybe some right. of the guys on the standards committee, but you know what I mean. But yeah, yeah well, it's, I, I know enough uh, to to see promise in Rust, shall we say. Mm. Yeah, and on that note, that's one of the things that's putting me off C Sharp these days is they've like they've gone completely bananas with pulling everything from every language that they're playing the we can do everything game um and yeah knowing every corner of c sharp is not that easy anymore um and picking up someone's code base who's been a bit clever um can be a real problem like you can literally be like i have no idea how to change this without breaking it um, which is not mm. not great um it seems like the the general drive is I, and I don't know what, what forces uh, are driving this, but I suspect it's something to do with the amount of time C-sharp has been around and uh, in, a, in a way that like every language that becomes as big as C-sharp, it's a victim of its own success in mm. that it's um, all the easy stuff has been done and now people are making serious demands for cutting-edge performance Mm. Um, for as you as you mentioned, for things like hosting costs to keep those minimized, uh, the easy stuff has been done. The language is no longer in the in the the utopian. We we designed this within the last five years phase, and we made these bunch of decisions as to what would make a better language. It's now firmly in the all of those decisions have smacked up against real world experience, mm. and several of them have been found wanting and now it's time to turn it into C++ in order to make up the slack phase. <laughs> uh, yeah, C++ and Ruby and mm, Scala and Clojure and Haskell and... <laughs> I, I heard a line one at university actually would, uh, about uh, how every programming, maybe this is, this is probably one of those things that's uh, attributed incorrectly to Nuth or somebody... Um, but uh, along the lines that every language uh, followed the same trajectory ultimately of slowly but surely becoming an implementation uh, uh, version of uh, uh, CLU common Lisp, uh, but with worse <laughs> syntax, something along those lines. Yeah. Um, yeah, enough about C Sharp bashing though, because that's not, we have a brand new direction, much as I love a good C Sharp bashing. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I like C sharp. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah, me it's, it, it it scratched a lot of the itches that I found wanting in C plus uh, plus as yeah. well. I've got a lot of good feelings for C sharp, but everything reaches its limit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me. Um, like that's yeah. done me done me very well, and I still like I went and played. I I did a couple <clears throat> more than one full on commercial project in Ruby on Rails, and. I came back to C sharp going, actually, no, I do like C sharp. <laughs> mm, um mm. so yeah, no, it's 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 got a lot going for it. The the ecosystem's good, the the dev teams are good. 
Um, it's just the long-term well, trend. It might be a bit worrying. I guess that's the thrust of your point, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's probably got another 20 years ahead of it before it completely collapses. Who knows? Um, hmm. On <clears throat> on the agency thing, the Rust agency, the Rust workshop, uh, which I've decided to name it, um, there is just one little thing that I wanted to say in there, which is that uh, <laughs> if, any, if anyone's a bit concerned that somebody who is just learning to do Rust <laughs> is going, hey, I'll write all of your really important Rust. The, the plan for this agency is not at all for me to be the be-all and the end-all. So my, my existing business is very much me doing C-sharp and team leads and team lead stuff and things like that. The, um, the new thing is very much not me being the core of this. Like, yeah, sure, I'm going to pitch in. I'm going to bring my experience to bear when it comes to keeping things on track and reviewing and leading and um <clears throat> filtering in terms of recruitment and things like that but yeah i fully intend to have people who are far better at me at this than um <clears throat> doing the actual projects over time so yeah just wanted to mention that in case people get in the wrong end of the stick with this one this is not a not a solo enterprise yeah um and the fact that the fact that the, the likes of you jim are even considering doing this kind of stuff is encouraging because like I, th I think you'll be far better at this than me because you come just from the right background to really get rust properly whereas i will probably for quite a long time be using my c-sharp clown feet and making things work but not like really that great way <laughs> well I, I think we've both got a bit of that in store for us um to be yeah. honest because there are there are definitely uh, at least one or two paradigms in Rust that I find completely fresh. Um, certainly, yeah, I mean, I don't want to go into it too deeply, but the, the, the borrow checker is something that strikes me as nothing but positive because it makes a serious attempt to systematically solve whole classes of problems that uh, dog people working in things like C++ um, and, and at compile time, which is a critical thing for productivity and, and avoiding the thing we all hate the most, which is debugging, of course. Mm. Um, and uh, that said, the lifetime side of it is still a bit mystery meat woo to me. I fully <laughs> admit that. And one of the things I look forward to is getting my head around exactly how that works and getting some conceptual solidity on that because I sense in it the potential similarly for for knocking down whole classes of problems especially with manual memory allocation in a genuinely new way um, so I see that that latter one is definitely one I'm still I uh, still haven't got my head around uh, the former mm. one more so in that it corresponds with the kind of design patterns that I've had to practice time and time again for writing reliable multi-threaded code. The borrow checker fits with that mentality. The borrow, check, the borrow checker and how it corresponds to the classic reader's writer lock, um, which is a great, a great primitive that's still not sufficiently widely used for multi-threaded programming. There's, there's a correspondence there that fits me conceptually. So I'm... Mm. The borrow checker excites me pretty much exclusively, much as fighting it um, <laughs> is a thing, mainly because people really 
in my opinion anyway from what I've seen so far fight the, the fighting the borrow checker amounts to people really really don't like being forced to write correct code the first mm. time um whereas the the lifetime stuff scares me a bit but I sense in it a similar massive promise that the borrow checker has for just getting rid of classes of problems that none of us particularly like having to think about actively so yeah mm. um, yeah i def i definitely there was a bit of a hump for me with the borrow checker but i feel like i've made friends with it now <clears throat> um like there was a couple of difficult learnings that like because this stuff is doesn't exist in c sharp in any way at all um that i i just couldn't do anything to start with and then i kind of got to a point where i was like oh i see kind of what it's trying to do here and what that means for what i can assign um like one of the big things that passed me by the first time around is that <clears throat> like you can define an immutable variable and give it a value and then you can define a mutable variable and pass it in and now that's mutable and that was not what i was expecting at all whereas i'm coming more from like the nascent c sharp immutability where like once you've made it immutable then you can do what you like with it but you ain't changing it so that was that was a bit eye-opening so but yeah you can you, make a variable more mutable than it started it seems that way yeah like let okay. mute y equals x and now i can change y when i couldn't change x like it's wow. like the container is mutable yeah it's bizarre but it, it's 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 that it's kind of like the reference through which you're accessing it. Yes. Yeah. Or, or it, it. I guess the C plus plus analog would be defining a mutable object, but assigning it to a reference to const, but in such a way that you can const cast that you can cast the const away later, and produce another reference that lets you mutate it. That's interesting. That that you it, said it, some it just, words there. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mention this because this is this is another of the bugbears I've had with C++ over the years. One of the big ideas that I had years ago was the, certainly the ability to go the other way would be damn handy because for most of my time writing C++, I've been an absolute const fiend. Everything is immutable by default. Mm -hmm. That, again, is a design decision of Rust that I absolutely love. And so I've got used to making everything const, but... There are exceptions, of course, and one of the thoughts I had was I would really love to be able to add certain qualifiers to variables after the fact. So be able to write a mutable variable, uh, declare a mutable variable maybe without initializing it because you have to pass it as an out param to something so you can't initialize it directly, but the function call initializes it for you. But then afterwards to immediately say, okay, now it's immutable mm -hmm. as, as a workaround for some of these initialization problems and there are other situations. So, yeah, yeah. The, the idea of changing qualifications on variables uh, piques my interest. That's neat. Mm. Yeah, there seems to be like an absolute ton of little gems like this floating around. Um, to go to the lifetime thing you mentioned, one of the things that encourages me about that is like I also don't really get it yet. Like I've kind of got some vague idea. The global mystifies me entirely, but I've been able to write stuff that does include lifetime stuff and get by. So, in terms of like initial productivity, which matters to some extent, like that's been quite an encouraging thing so far. Yeah, I think every so, programmer recognizes the phenomenon of cargo culting it until you make it. We all have to do it mm, with new stuff. Yeah, I've done lots yeah. of that so far with Rust. 
Um, <laughs> and it's been relatively pleasant. Like people had kind of warned me about the borrow checker, so I was kind of prepared for an, a compiler that hated me. Um, but now <laughs> I feel like it's it's like giving me a slightly longer leash because I've for good behaviour. <laughs> right. um, I I want to <clears throat> gently guide the conversation. Um, a little away from the details because we could talk endlessly about Rust's details with our relatively naive understanding. And there, there is a ton out there on, you know, there's not a lot we can educate people on, like the, the ins and outs of Rust. There's, there's so much out there. Um, but I think what is interesting to talk about <clears throat> is kind of a bit more about, okay, give, given all of that, which admittedly was quite long, but that's what I love about podcasts. There's no news on the hour. Um, what is kind of our interpretation of that, and what does that mean in terms of whether we'd use it or not? What what the future is for it? Whether you know whether we see it fitting into our lives, and what kind of properties that gives it? Be, you know, a layer out from the actual coding. Yeah. Um, so I'll I'll, I'll go first. Um, because <laughs> it's my show, and I can I can go first. Um, and then I'll hand over to you, which which is <clears throat> why. What I'm really feeling positively about with this is it really is showing the promise of being that low-level, high-performance, zero-abstraction thing. Like, no runtime is very unusual, to say the least, um, especially for a language that has so much capability. No garbage collector, so no no glitches there. Although there is this, you can have a garbage collector, and there are trade-offs, so it's not always the right thing to have no GC. Uh, we had a conversation about that. Um and in terms of the ecosystem, I'm, it's, it's growing. People are loving it. I, it really looks to me like this might... Well, this stands a good chance of being a language that is not one that people kind of come to because it's interesting and novel or they're new to programming and someone introduces it. And then after time, they realize it's really not the thing. Like this, the, <clears throat> the ecosystem of crates, libraries... I think is still relatively immature. Um, there's definitely a lot you could do. Like I think you could certainly write all sorts of things in production now. Um, I worry a little bit about the security, but I think that's going to improve over time and it's all open source. So this usually goes better than private closed source things. Um, <clears throat> so for me, my feel so far is like, this could actually be the language that I would like to write all my pet projects in from now on now on and would like I, I can't just suddenly become an individual contributor in Rust overnight from C sharp well no to be honest I could but I'm not going to I'm not going to just throw away all that experience I'm going to continue in my um servicing C sharp clients but I think I can join the Rust community and contribute in that world and this this agency idea I think really does have legs so I'm I'm super positive about the whole thing at the moment. Like I've spent quite a long time getting my head into it, learning it both at a, like a ecosystem level and a, a me actually trying to build something, um, which is always like you say very instructive. And after all of this, I'm still really positive. I haven't come across anything which makes me think this this is not going to work. This is oh no, because sometimes you learn a language and you get in there and then you're like, oh they did that. Like I, I had a crack at Django and then I tripped over something and was like, oh, this is junk. I'm never going to use this. <laughs> this has not got a long life. I, I know there'll be Django stuff out there, but this is never going to take over the world. Um, and Ruby on Rails, like 
is obviously huge, but it's it's dying. And they've kind of done the opposite of Rust, which is whereas Rust does what they call shift left, like make all of your errors earlier because they're cheapest to fix the earlier you find them. Ruby's kind of the opposite, which is like roughly prototype something, ship it, and then prove that you've got a business and then refine. But having used it, it really hurts not having types. Like being able to pass anything you like as arguments to a method that might not even line up and you only find out in your unit tests or production like is is horrifying to me. And I, I think after a while people realise that, you know, it's not, not so great maintaining these things and maybe they don't want to write their next project in it. So, yeah, that's about where I'm standing on the whole thing right now. Um, what What's your feel from your exposure so far well just to just to comment on that last point very quickly um that Mm. this this whole issue of not having a type system it feels like something that actually works surprisingly well for small systems for simple pieces of software yeah knowable systems what ones where you can keep the whole thing in your head as a single programmer exactly I've done Ruby. I've worked on systems like that. I didn't spend my life dealing with violations of type expectations in function calls. But I can see how that would become a big problem once you try and do something less trivial with it. So mm. in general, I think I'm I'm happy to out myself as a card-carrying type system bigot. That that's just something you've got to have on your side at compile time for anything non-trivial. Uh, where where I found have a bad time. Where I Go found on. that that fell apart, in my experience, was not so much that, you know, somebody passed the wrong thing in. It was more like, when you're thinking about making a change, the question is, where is this used? And if you have a proper type system, then the compiler or the interpret, um, the, what do they call it, like the code an- analysis systems can say, I can guarantee you these are the places this, this is used. In Ruby, it's like, uh, have fun searching the code base for strings, which is not mm. a great basis for refactoring and you better this is partly why i think the ruby crowd are so keen on testing is because without it they're completely sunk to, to just tell me something on that does if if you make a function call in ruby to a a, a non-existent function what happens does that runtime get error. compile time runtime error that's the no, thing it's an interpreted language oh yeah because even if it had checking for the existence of functions then one could use some of the tricks that I use in things like C++ of when I want to make a change, I just rename the thing and let the code break. And then mm-hmm. that's how I find out all the places it's used. But if you don't yeah. even have validation of the existence of functions at compile time, you're really up a creek there. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I, I wonder um, if having worked on Ruby things before, like maybe there are businesses out there who have a Ruby code base and... They want to rewrite some or all of it in a language that's not going to be so painful for the long time. Long term, maybe they want maybe maybe their Rails costs hosting costs are killing them, and they're like, uh, "What's next?" And Rust might be a good candidate for mm. starting in the middle and working outwards. Yeah. As for the the, the more general picture, um, but what what kind of thing are you looking for me to comment on there? Um, um kind of what your feel is about what you've seen so far like um and you've mentioned that like actually this might 
might potentially be something that you could get more into um yeah mm. just elaborate on that really like what, okay. what you, like the broader bit you know what's your assessment of the ecosystem from your limited knowledge like the business side of it yeah, whatever aspect I think is of interest to you really but the one thing that that struck me is your comment that uh this is the language i would like to do all my pro side projects in or all my projects in Mm -hmm. That's a sentiment I recognize. That's basically my life as a C++ programmer up until now. Mm. Um, that when when you enjoy the mentality behind the design of a programming language, it's, it's almost like a friend that you want to spend more time with. Mm. And that's a lot of what's kept me using that language for as long as I have, despite the deficiencies. Um, so... Yeah, I, I I sense some of what you sense in Rust that way, that this is a language that could also become a, a trusted friend, shall we say, that I want to spend mm. lots of time with. Um, and, yeah, it, it's, it, it seems to have all the basics, all the things you would expect, like type systems. Um, uh, it does all the obvious uh, compile time checking that you'd even expect from something like C, but I just I feel like there's a there's a paradigm shift where there there's actually been the courage to take on classes of problems um, that even C plus plus has kind of drawn a line in the sand and said no we're not going there, and maybe that's because it's a existing language and it's impossible to retrofit this kind of stuff, but then. From what I gather, things like the borrow checker were not always in Rust, and they simply Correct. evolved them into existence. So it's it's interesting from that angle that it is possible to. It one thing that strikes me about it from from those things like that is that Rust is more than maybe any other recent language I've come across I mean I'm sure this was going on in the 70s a lot during the development of things like C um, it seems like a modern example of the evolutionary approach to programming language design um, and and that's the kind of thing C++ has always had and although that has now reached a level of complexity uh, and fullness of features and complex interactions between the features that make it extremely hard to continue with that evolutionary approach, which is why C++ 0x turned into C++ 11, because mm. it seems the committee just bit off more than they could chew. They didn't understand the full weight of everything that was already in the language enough to know how much to take on in one release. Um, and they've done much better since because I guess lessons were learned and they now fully understood what the, what they did wrong there. But I l very, very few languages continue to adopt an evolutionary but radical approach, I guess is the way of putting it, in the way that C++ has done. Introduce, like, uh, for, for instance, you don't need to know what this is but people like me will know things like r value references in c++ they were only introduced in c++ 11 i believe uh, but we're talking about a, a foundational paradigm shifting feature to add to a language that's already 20 years old and so there was a certain amount of, of courage in 
doing that radical but evolutionary change. And mm. I feel like a lot of the spirit behind Rust, as evidenced by the fact that the borrow checker didn't start out being in there, but now it is. Um, as a, that that's 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 in Rust. It seems to me the, mm-hmm. the community or whoever's responsible for evolving the features of the language have the necessary guts to do major new paradigm shifting things, and really explore, make Rust uh, an exploration. In the in the entrepreneurial spirit that a, a company is really an exploration, like where a company ends up, it's not a foregone conclusion. It's a function of the specific audiences it had at different times, and the specific things those audiences valued because of a myriad of factors that had nothing to do with the language. Um, and so, in a way, it it's really a recognition that that it's the the journey not the destination and 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 yeah. the hope that the destination will be good if the journey is undertaken diligently enough and with humility uh, regarding what's important um so i i sense a spirit that i like behind rust that's similar to the the extremely disciplined spirit of the C++ standards committee but with a younger language that has more room for maneuver to do this radical evolutionary change, and so yeah, they, I don't know what Rust is. Second on. mover advantage there. Yeah, I don't know what's coming to Rust in future. Maybe they've got more paradigm shifting ideas, but even and, and I might be showing my ignorance here. But as I said before, they I think the major two paradigm shifting ideas I know about so far are the borrow checker and the lifetime. Um, system uh, and it, to even to to take to produce something that is C plus plus like enough to interest people like me, but also has two major areas of conceptual innovation to make the job of programming easier. It's like I think in some sense Rust has already proven its worth as a contribution to the field of programming language design by this mm. point. And it's by no means finished, of course. So who knows? Um, yeah, there's so, yeah. there's two things that I'm aware of that I'm sure have contributed to this. One one is um, you've got Mozilla behind it, who have a a real product used by vast numbers of people, <clears throat> and Rust is particularly for building that in ways that are more reliable, um, which means that they already know how to build and design uh, things in a community in a more distributed fashion. So they they brought that wisdom of <clears throat> how to run that kind of uh, more egalitarian kind of project um, in ways that very few things I know of have succeeded. Like Debian is a is a notable example of something that has outlived its creator because of the design, not so much of the the thing itself, but of the the community and systems around it um so that's very encouraging and uh mozilla have recently spun out the rust foundation to shepherd that independently and we hope sorry that. just to sorry to interrupt but what is this project of theirs that's developed in rust if i understand you firefox really firefox yeah, is written in rust now well it's getting there because because it's um this is one of the reasons it has no garbage collector and no runtime is because um 
that means that they can piece by piece replace their old C++ code with Rust code and compile them both together wow. into one binary. I'm, I'm quite stunned. That is a ballsy mm. move. It's impressive. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I think they started with something very small and it's been expanding and it's been getting better and they've been able to do more and more. Um, yeah, that's quite a thing in itself. Um, mm. Yeah, but... Uh, and, yeah, and it's, main... I mean, it, let's, let's be under no illusions. A web browser is a very complex piece of software these days. Oh, so oh, yeah. whatever, whatever deficiencies Rust has with respect to... Whatever deficiencies it might have that are only going to show up in very complex software systems... Firefox is probably going to get there first, I imagine. <laughs> yep. And those problems are going to get solved. So that's very encouraging. Yeah, I mean, I can't really speak to that because I've not done anything even vaguely close to that. I live in live in the world of web. But yeah, it's certainly encouraging. Um, and I'm I'm super encouraged by the creation of this this new foundation to to shepherd this thing into the future. Um, and the other the other thing that I'm aware of that I think has helped them with this innovation is they've got, got this concept of. Uh, rust editions uh and i may mangle this but i'll have a go so <clears throat> every project has a cargo.toml file um which is defined it's kind of similar to the the various dependency files that you'll see in in other languages um like a gem file for ruby or uh, a csproj file in c sharp that might define the libraries it pulls in and some other bits uh I don't even know what NPM uses, node uses. Um, anyway, it's not important. <clears throat> um, so they have at the top of the cargo.toml file that you include when you create your own Rust projects, uh, a line that says edition equals, uh, say, 2018. And my understanding of what this does is the the single Rust compiler is able to basically behave differently like compile completely different versions of the language so by having this say 2018 in here the rust compiler is like oh okay i need to use this version of the compiler um but if you change your project say edition equals 2021 i'm not quite sure what the versions are then they might have completely dropped a feature that you had before and added a new feature uh and if your code works that way then that's all cool um they, i think they've got some tools to help you migrate but the the real genius of this whole thing is that you can have things built in different editions and then compile them all together into one binary which is epic um which means that you can consume a library that was written in a different edition so you don't have this thing where you know like in dotnet land they've got this massive fracture because <clears throat> they had dotnet framework which only ran on Windows, basically. And then they rewrote the entire thing as .NET Core, um, which is now multi-platform. But you cannot consume a .NET framework library in .NET Core. It's not possible, as far as I know. Someone's probably going to prove me wrong, but <laughs> it's certainly not easy. Um, whereas in Rust, like that means that every library can evolve at its own pace to the new versions of the language. So that, that means they can make much more breaking changes. Like so long, As long as it all still compiles together, they can do cool stuff. So, yeah. This really puts me in mind of something, which is what I've seen happen in uh, in C++ development in Visual Studio, and I think it applies to all the other major compilers as well, that the kind of return to 
radical evolutionary change that the C++ committee has been up to since C++11 and since they committed to a three-year release cycle for new editions of the language standard, uh, it's ended up in very much the same place where in Visual Studio you will, either for an individual source file, translation unit to use the right term, or for the whole project, you tell it which version of the language to use. So in, this strikes me as a, a hard-won lesson from a language with an enormous amount of legacy code out there. I don't know whether it's millions or billions of lines of code, but it's got to be billions. <laughs> millions is ridiculous. <laughs> Even the Jurassic Park security system had millions of lines of code. Yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting to see such a young language preemptively, whether they, they must have, I imagine they must have been partly inspired by what's kind of happened to C++ organically. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's interesting to see a young language that doesn't really need to deal with these problems quite yet, preemptively taking on a reasonable solution to improve its own scalability as a language out there in the world with an established code base. Um, so that's nice. Yeah, I'm definitely seeing Rust having had the advantage of being able to learn from everyone else's language challenges. <clears throat> um, yeah, and they've definitely not been afraid to to change things I, I, on that um i think it was on the, the weird the weird video from the rust conf um that <laughs> apparently the early version of rust if you assigned something to something um the operate the equals operator was formally like a left arrow as in less than minus <laughs> which is a bit random Ouch. and that, that that gave way to a more normal equals sign <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that, that suggests that there was uh, a certain degree of inspiration from uh, from the kind of functional languages that are extremely popular in very limited circles um, mm. and that maybe they're now starting to move away from more towards a, a better version of uh, C or C++ kind of thing, um, maybe actively drawing what affordances they can from those languages without inappropriately overdoing it. It's, uh, it, I, I think if I can just comment on what you're saying about learning from everything that's come before, I think there's a slight, slightly subtle point to make here, which is that every language, at least for the last 30 years, every language at inception has its designers have had in mind learning what came before. But what feels different to me about Rust is maybe that they're trying to learn on a more meta level from what's come before. Java, mm -hmm. for instance, has the obvious hallmarks of trying to learn from C++. It stole a lot of the syntax sometimes inappropriately and made a lot of ideological decisions about which bits were not worthy of making it into Java because they were too complex or hard to understand or unnecessarily complex for some naive understanding of unnecessary. Uh, whereas what I sense from Rust, maybe I'm over-interpreting here, is that they've learned from that whole cycle. They've seen mm. Rust is new and is, is, Rust exists at a point in history where there is enough prior history of of full cycles of programming language evolution 
that the designers of Rust can be can be kind of beaten by by a careful study of the history into acknowledging that it's not enough to make a bunch of ideological decisions about which bits are good and bad in previous languages, but mm-hmm. to understand how the perception of what's good and bad changes through the evolution of a language, much as has happened with C Sharp. It was started out as a much, much better, less ideological version of Java, but it still maybe took some things that it shouldn't have from Java. And now it's paying the price in having to revisit some of that and having to become a much more complex language as a result. And I feel like mm-hmm. maybe in some degree the the people responsible for evolving Rust are looking at those cycles and understanding the harm that naivety and utopianism often, perhaps always, tend to do in the early stages of a language's life. And they're trying to avoid the long-term pitfalls that come with that. Um, it's one of the reasons that it just gives me a, a better vibe than uh, a lot of other things I've seen. I think. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I agree. And to to go back to the like GoLang Rust contrast, like one of the things that makes me a little bit uneasy about GoLang is it, it like it's a really nicely designed language, but it does feel a little bit like they just chopped off everything that they didn't think they'd need from the possible space of language capabilities. And right. you know, and also like what they could feasibly achieve to get their key things like compile time and what have you. And I, I don't know how long that stands before, you know, the dam bursts and it all comes flooding back in again. Um like it's their stated intent to not let it, but you know, they've they've added generics and I don't like the syntax. I think it's ugly. Um I I have zero faith in their statements that they intend not to let it. It's not up to them. The market will decide. It depends what Go is used for, what areas mm. it finds penetration in, where it becomes popular. At a certain point, the decision is you either increase your market share and try and spread the appeal of the thing and give people what they want, or you stick to your ideological principles and in some sense you doom the ultimate popularity of the language to be limited. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I agree with, with a lot of what you're saying about Go. I. I I was uncomfortable with the degree of ideological thinking that I kind of sensed uh, when I looked into it. When you were you were um, uh, working on um, uh, Schema Explorer, for instance, yep. um, I sensed some of the ideology that I recognised from things like Java, for instance, mm. and I thought you guys are going to be sorry in the end if you're not careful. Yeah, there's definitely parallels there. Um, yeah, like they they made a, a minimal thing so that engineers could just get on with it without falling down all these holes. They had a couple of innovations, like Java had their checked exceptions and their bytecode. Golang's got its cha- uh, Go routines and channels and its particular way of doing things. But it it seems kind of arbitrary, doesn't it? Whereas, and, and so kind of C-sharp's been through the same evolution in that the original C-sharp was kind of, a simpler, nicer version of Java in a lot of ways, but the same concept of a bytecode, which they called intermediate language. And then they kind of they kind of held back the floodgates really for a very long time. And then over the last, I don't know, five years, the floodgates have opened for whatever reason, and they finally decided one performance is everything. Like I saw a .NET framework post the other day saying performance is our number one thing. 
which is not a developers 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 kind of point of view um and right yeah they've been definitely copying everything from everything so at that point yeah there's like like you say it'll bite because if you design your language kind of idea in an ideology of simplicity then you haven't you by necessity you've not left room for all of the other things that are going to come down the line and then you force yourself into corners where well you can't have a nice syntax for that because that would conflict with this other thing that the compiler would interpret it as and you can't change that because you'll break all the existing programs therefore you have to do something that sucks um and you know that that lasts more or less amounts of time and you know i'm sure c++ and rust have and will suffered from that it's that's kind of unavoidable and to an extent <clears throat> the only answer to that is a brand new language um the thing is if i'm being honest of course, there are aspects of ideology to everything, and mm. I can name one piece of ideology that I recognize in both C++ and Rust, which is the um, Bjorn Strasserup's uh, dictum, I think it's his uh, originally, about C++, which is you don't pay for what you don't use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's and they call zero cost abstractions is mentioned a lot around Rust. Exactly. So... <clears throat> I've, I can only assume that's a weird kind of exception. It's the kind of ideology that is so abstract that it has relatively few downsides. And it is, given that I think there's an, there's an element of attraction to, to some degree of ideology or utopianism in every programmer, because why else mm -hmm. do you become a programmer? You want to write <laughs> stuff that can help as many people as possible. Programming is the best way to scale your manual labor as widely as possible. Nothing else compares to it. So in some degree, uh, programming as a discipline has that ideological foundation. And so I like to think that, that you don't pay for it, you don't use zero-cost abstraction piece of ideology is something that we can all live with. Uh, because what's the alternative? You do pay for what you don't use, and plenty of languages, especially Java, have tried that. And it's not clear that in the long run it offers any great advantages. No, and certainly the the horrors of like, oh god, we have to run the JVM on our server and worry about tuning the memory usage to be somewhere in the region of gigabytes is not much fun. Exactly. Mm, yeah, why is my Java service down? Oh, because you limited it to only 1.5 gigabytes <laughs> oh, in dear. the JVM. Yes. Oof. Well, let's just say that I've seen that in C++ as well. A former former client who shall remain nameless um, <laughs> yeah. was unable to do 32-bit builds of their core software product because unrestrained template bloat through generations of of um, insufficiently restrained programmers working in C++ had basically made an executable that I, I don't even remember how long it took to build, but the final executable was five gigabytes. That's so, insane. <clears throat> yes, yes, it's it's what we what we programmers like to refer to using the technical terminology as bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, right, I'm gonna wrap this up because I've got a long day tomorrow um, 
And the way I want to wrap this particular interesting flowing conversation up, which hopefully has been interesting to more people than you and I, assuming we don't lose the recording. (laughs) Um, Thought you jinxed it now. Oops. Well, we're using this wonderful new Riverside thing, so it's all cool. Um, We shall see. Is to kind of summarize all of the above in terms of it it seems to me that it, it's silly to naively go into a brand new language and kind of go right this is the brand new thing let's go let's write everything in that because there are things that you could figure out that would bite you and trade-offs that you would realize if you thought a bit harder and tried a few things out that you should make a different trade-off i i feel like personally i've getting deep enough that i'm getting significantly more confident that there is really not that much to make me think otherwise about this um that this is really just such a solid language and ecosystem it's interesting it's probably sustainable for a very long time and at some point you basically just have to take the gamble and get on whichever language ride is going and see how it goes you know hang on i mean in the end, the worst case is to to learn another thing. You know, it'll be many many languages down the line for me. I mean, goodness me, it, more or less deeply. You know, Pascal, Delphi, C, C plus plus, C sharp, VB script, ASP Classic, SQL, like oh goodness, Ruby. Uh, what else? Have I showing your age JavaScript. Here. Don't forget JavaScript. Yeah, definitely showing my age. <laughs> no COBOL um, so I'm alright Some, someone <laughs> one of the older coders on our on our project shared a look this is COBOL and picture of some punched card <laughs> like if you want to be rich just go learn to code COBOL and learn how to unscrew an enterprise mainframe because apparently there's still enormous money in that but anyway back, back to the the summary my, my feeling is we've Kick the tires. Well, I've kicked the tires quite a lot on this now, and I am pretty happy to get on this train and see where it goes. Be along for the ride. How how are you feeling on that kind of judgment call at the moment? I know it's much earlier for you. I think I think it's basically sound. I mean, it's uh, I, I've uh, I've really come to to value the kind of running commentary you've been giving me on your uh, experiences with Rust. Um, because it's it's been a fruitful source of conversations, but it's just yeah. every now and then a little nugget of insight into the mentality of the language has filtered through to me, um, basically without the, the cost of having to go away and write it for a week. So it's been nice to kind of parasitize on your journey that way, shall we say. Mm. Uh, in the bigger picture, uh, I think if I look at myself let's say we live in a world where five years down the line I'm I'm knee-deep in rust and uh, uh, quite conversant with it myself. Uh, there are undoubtedly going to be things that annoy me about it um, because mm. every solved problem makes room for you to see a new problem that was just too big to worry about before. And there might even be things where I think, oh, God, I wish this was C++ because I could use this pattern that I can't use in rust. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a str- strange feeling of confidence that none of that is going to be big enough to break my enthusiasm for it uh, as and when I do get into it. 
there my experience this goes back to my comment about how i think it's the most serious contender i may maybe have ever seen for a c++ successor with almost any other language i can spot the things that are going to tick me off just by reading a description of a, a very high level description of the language I can immediately see the ideological decisions and how my experience shows those decisions to be questionable and quickly develop a bad taste. And I haven't yet come up with anything, come across anything about Rust that leaves a major bad taste in my mouth that way. I feel like I I trust the, the, the philosophy of the minds behind it and that they have that ideological angle sufficiently under control and are capable of looking far enough ahead in the language's evolution to avoid the avoid stepping on the kind of rakes that designers <laughs> of new languages have been stepping on for the last 30 years repeatedly mm. and painfully for people like me mm -hmm. um head desk etc um mm. and that's not to say that in 10 or 20 years i mean looking at things like the borrow checker and the lifetime side of rust as i say these are seem to be major paradigm shifts in pushing the state of the art of static code analysis pragmatic static code analysis forward not the kind of static analysis where you can prove the behavior of an entire program without running it uh, that is basically impossible for any non-trivial system but that people use to the maximum extent possible where safety critical systems are involved. It's a much more ground up evolutionary, uh, bottom up rather, um, let's just push the state of the art of static analysis forward where we can, introducing one concept at a time. So it's it strikes me as what the C++ standards committee would do if they cared more about if they, how can I put this, if they had more of a burning faith in the importance of pushing forward static analysis as a tool to help programmers in the future. So in 10 or 20 years, maybe something will come along uh, or be invented that is able to supersede some of the limitations that Rust has accrued, some of the some of the areas of static analysis and verification that they weren't quite able to even see because they mm. were being evolutionary about it in the same same way as with language features in general the static analysis features are bound to suffer from the same problems in the long run that uh, at a certain point you have to get more holistic and start from scratch and make use of what's been learned by previous languages and start from a better place but for right now, um, if it's if it's actively pushing the field of, of static verification to help the programmer forward in a pragmatic way that does turn out to be better than what's generally come before, then what's not to like? What else are we going to do? Sit around for 20 years and wait for its successor? <laughs> it's still yeah, going to be less frustrating than trying to use things like C++, so why not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're almost into the realms of computer science sci-fi at that point, are we? Like, visualizing what the future could be, which is fun, but doesn't really help us know what to write in now. Cool. Yeah.
Right. I... If there's one thing I've learned from sci-fi, it's that trying to trying to predict innovation beyond a 50-year maximum time horizon is totally impossible. Yeah. Um, Still love watching because it. Because I know reading enough. Reading it, though. Oh, absolutely. But I've, I've been watching it and reading it for long enough to, um, to see uh, uh, sci-fi that is 30 and 40 years old in a new light and to see all mm. the things they got wrong, like... Uh, Trunky displays um, that are supposed yeah. to that were look, looked futuristic at the time, for instance, as a silly example. But there's a lot of deeper stuff, and yeah, it's it's futile to try and predict um, on a scale of too many decades. So do you just get on pragmatically and have the best, and try and have the philosophy that you think is going to advance the state of the art as much as possible in the near future? Yeah, there we go. Maybe there's a tagline for the Rust Workshop. Something about pragmatic. It's a bit verbose. The, 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 the pragmatic future. There you go. <laughs> the pragmatic future. I like it. Anyway, um, right. Thank, thank you very much, Jim, for for joining me. Uh, this might be an awkward question, but is there anywhere that people can find you online, should they wish to? I'm I'm currently working on on getting together more of an online presence in the medium term. There's nothing much for the time being, but uh, okay. Well, uh, I hope it... we'll we'll talk again on this podcast, and I hope to be able to give a a, a better answer to that question in future. Well, if if there is, then we can stick it in the show notes underneath. So check check the links underneath. Right. My my personal home is timwise.co.uk. The consulting company is charmconsulting.co.uk. The Rust Workshop is so new, it doesn't even have a domain, <clears throat> which is quite something, but it will do, um, along with wherever this podcast left, lives. So check the show notes for um, uh, links. And uh, if you follow me on Twitter, I am sharing my little piecemeal learnings in the open at the moment. Um, so all that remains to say is uh, if you would like to work in the Rust workshop uh, as a excellent coder, then get in touch. And if you would like to bring an interesting problem to the Rust workshop for our excellent Rust people to work on, then get in touch. And that is that. See you next time. <laughs>